If you guys are new here, welcome. My name is Brian, one of the pastors, and we're going to continue uh, studying through uh, this great book of Acts. That's what we started several months ago. We're going to keep, keep going through it, continuing through it until we're done, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. Hopefully, it's, at this point, it's been a blessing for you guys. If you guys don't have a Bible, raise your hand. We have some ushers that would love to get you guys a Bible. We're going to read, pick it up at chapter 4, verse 23 this morning. A uh, quick little backstory. I'm going to have you guys all stand. We're going to read this passage together. Um, uh, the church is growing. So the, the backstory of the book of Acts is what we see is this brand new church that basically is uh, doing what Jesus asked it to do. It's beginning to grow. They're meeting with each other. They're studying God's word. They're going out in boldness and telling people about the fact that Jesus is king and that he rescues people and he's the new uh, replacement for the temple, meaning you go to Jesus and he heals you, he cleanses you, he washes you. He is life itself. And so what happens was, uh, what I love about the story that we've been looking at for the past couple of weeks is it's, on the one hand, it's extremely common. It's just a normal slice in the day in the life of the early church people. So it's, it's history. It's actual real historical storyline. But it's also supernatural. Because on the one hand, you just see them going about doing their everyday normal routine, and yet being aware of God wanting to invade in unique and profound and beautiful ways. And that's exactly what we see. So they go up to this, the temple at the hour of prayer, which is a time and something that they would used to do, and they would pray. And as they're going up, there's a beggar who is also crippled. So he's not able to walk, and he's asking them for money. Uh, Peter and John say they don't have any money, but what they do do is they extend a hand to this guy, say, we don't have any money, but what we do have, in the name of Jesus, arise and walk. And so this guy reaches out his hand. He is lifted up, and for the first time in his entire life, he's probably mid-40s, he begins to walk. It's an absolute miracle. People are shocked. They're tripping out. This guy is running around, dancing, jumping, leaping. You would imagine it's an incredible commotion that's going on. And there's all sorts of stuff going on. People are asking questions, how did this happen? The short of it is Peter and John basically attribute this miracle to God intervening through his servant, Jesus. In other words, through Jesus, God is bringing life and healing and wholeness and reordering chaos and brokenness and replacing it with life and uh, shalom and peace. And God is doing this through his servant, Jesus. Well, uh, the religious uh, structure did not like Peter and John doing this, and so they had them arrested. And they basically had them queried. Uh, They were in front of this tribunal. Long and short of it is they tell them, don't ever go back out and proclaim the name of Jesus again. Peter and John then go back to their company of friends, and they begin to do what we're about to read. But here's what I want you to have in the back of your mind as we read this. It's the question of what is the reflexive action? Like what, what, what is the instinctive response to the early Christians when they are confronted by great uh, threats of life and peace and disturbances to their lives, uh, things that are or unknown, unpredictable type circumstances, what do they do when their life is shaken? That's really the question. What, what do you do? That's what I want you to think about, and that's what I want you to have in the back of your mind as we read the passage. Like, what do we do? What are the responses or the reflexes, reflexive responses that we have that we immediately just go to, not by way of thinking about it or calculating, but it's just natural. It's the default mode of what we do. That's what I want you to think about, because what we see in the early church is there are these reflexive responses that they have. So when they undergo, undergo, Incredible pressure, under incredible uh, 
torment to their existence, they do something. And, and what we read is what they do. And so with that, there's a backstory. Why don't we all stand, I'll read the passage, and I'll pray, and then we'll get to work looking at what God has to speak to us today. So Acts chapter 4, verse 23, starts off like this. When they were released, they went to their friends, and they reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God, and they said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of your father, of our father David, your servant said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage or the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against the anointed. So if that doesn't make sense in the storyline, they're actually quoting an Old Testament passage and we'll come to that in a minute. It says in verse 27, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, those whom you, an- or whom you anointed Jesus, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they had gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We receive it as the word of God. And so, God, as we stand here, we pray that our hearts and our minds, our thoughts, our affections would be open to you. God, for you to reshape us, for you to challenge us. God, areas maybe where we have been um, uh, in, in, on paths that are in contradiction to you. God, we ask that you would even confront us and reset the course of our lives in one that is consistent with who you are, one that will lead to life as opposed to death or brokenness or hurt or pain or suffering. So God, we ask that you would just have your way with us this morning, and we pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. We all said, amen. All right, I want you all to grab a seat. So, again, as I was reading this, I was just really struck with the fact of how these people responded. Now, to, to really kind of set the context here, what type of circumstances they were facing were not small, all right? For some of us, the challenges that we face they range, right? Some of them, they might be like threat of loss of a job, threat of loss of a marriage or a spouse or a relationship or someone that was close to us, threat of loss of a house. Those are, those are big. Um, others, maybe not as big. But the point of the matter is there are these range of big to not so big types of circumstances oftentimes face us. Um, some of those things are caused by our own circumstances or things that we've done. So maybe some of the things that we've done or some things that we're facing are the direct result of actions or decisions that we made. In other words, we brought on some of the suffering ourselves. For some of us, uh, we didn't. We didn't ask for it. We didn't go looking for it, but it came upon us. And so, therefore, we are struck with this insurmountable measure of uh, stress and challenge and difficulty and hardship. In a lot of ways, this is the way the early church was. They were struck with something that they didn't go searching for. They didn't look for. It just struck them. And it was big, it was massive, because what they were facing was the religious leadership, which really, for the most part, was backed by the 
political leadership and the military leadership of the day, which, if you think of it this way, it was all the religious leaders, which was uh, all the Jews of Sanhedrin, which was kind of the makeup of the Jewish leadership, as well as all the Roman powers that would, would have been. And the point that I would make is this, is that the type of threats that were leveled against them carried weight. They weren't hollow. They weren't shallow. I mean, some of the things that we face, someone might threaten you and be like, you're going to lose your job or whatever. And that may be real, may not be real. And, um, but for these guys, the threats that they were facing, they weren't hollow because we know that just two months prior, they basically issued the same threats to Jesus. And they carried out their actions, and which ultimately led to Jesus' brutal, terrorizing death. He was killed. He was crucified by the same group of people that are making threats to these guys now. So in other words, they, they are facing a very severe circumstance in which their earth has the potential of radically shaking them, in which they have the real possibility of finding themselves off balance, finding themselves in this place of losing equilibrium, finding themselves completely disoriented. Instead, what we actually see is these guys come out the very end, going out, doing the very same thing that they just were doing two days prior, which, again, you read this, and it's kind of a shocking story. I mean, for the most part, we love movies or stories or narratives that describe people that go through insurmountable types of challenges and then come out on the other end. Right? I think of a gal, maybe some of you know who she is, Joni Erickson Tata. Um, and Joni, I think that's her name. Um, but she was paralyzed as a young lady. And yet today she is a massive voice, even though she's, I think, a quadriplegic. She's a, she's a great voice for people that go through great suffering. And so you look at her life. Now, her life was not without challenges or hardship or suffering, but... You look at her today, she is pressing into Jesus. She's a major voice for the power and the glory of Jesus. And people are shocked when they hear her story because you normally don't see those two things come together. You normally don't see great suffering leading to great people. You see great suffering oftentimes leading to great brokenness, great anger, great cynicism, great wrath, great questioning, great skepticism, great doubt, but not so with her. So people look at her and they're, they're, they're amazed. They're, they're shocked. They're um, I hate this word, but they're inspired. But the word inspired is kind of a cool word, even though it's been overused and misused by Christian circles for a very, very long time. But the word inspired just basically means uh, inspirited, new life, uh, something being breathed into you from outside. It's the idea that God is using this narrative, this story, to breathe life into lifelessness. So the point is that we read a story like this, and we're amazed by the fact that here's a group of people that are threatened by the superpowers, the military might, um, and it's very severe. And yet, they come out on the other end really strong. So the question that I was wrestling with a lot as I was reading this and studying this was, how in the world they do this? How is it possible for them to do it? And trying to understand how they did it, it also gives us, at least to some degree, a little bit of a template as to how we can do it, to realize, like, if we, and as we, face great trials and hardships and difficulties and suffering, is it possible for us to come out on the other end as well, the way these guys did? So, in other words, what I want to look at today is not so much just the template, but also to understand a little bit about what fueled them, what empowered them, what enabled them to stand in the midst of shaking circumstances, unshaken. Because that's what we see with these guys. So, with that, we'll just take a look at three specific things. There's probably 
few more, but we'll look at three specific things, and I'll just give them to you real quick, and we'll look at each one of them as we go through. One, we'll see that each one of these guys, they turn toward one another, they press in towards one another. Secondly, we see that they prayed, and then thirdly, we see that they just continued on. So we'll look at each one of those. One, let's take a look at the fact that they turned towards one another. Verse 23, right at the gate, simply tells us this, as soon as they were released from prison, it says they went to their friends. I love that, love that. They, they had this default mode where they went directly to their friends. So when you think of it, they, the, the friends that they had gone to, in fact, the actual uh, Greek language that's used there uh, doesn't necessarily use the word friends. It just says they went to their own. Uh, it could imply friendship, but um, I, I like the idea of not so much thinking about them as friends, as buddy buddies, as, as a community of similars, but when I think about them as their own, this is a community of difference. In other words, uh, different people, a community of people that are unlike each other. And that is what this community was. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this point because I can spend an entire sermon on it, but I'm not going to. But the point is, is that this is a community of people that is broad and wide and diverse and very unique. Because what we see is that these people are pressing into each other and not doing what typically audiences that are radically diverse do. Because audiences that are radically diverse in this world, in the social order of the way things are in the world in which we live in, is what you typically have happening or taking place is you have this coagulation. People unite towards other people of similar desires, similar tastes, similar groupings, similar ages. So what you have is this Maybe if, if you have a large community of people, what you have is a large community of people where all the young people sit over here, all the old people sit over here, and they avoid the young people, all the married people that have kids hang out over here, and they avoid the people that don't have kids, all the people that don't have kids try to stay away from people that have kids because kids are noisy and annoying, and on and on and on it goes. Or you have the rich people hanging over here, avoiding the poor people, or you have the people of certain race over here, avoiding the other people of certain race over here, but not so with this community. This is a community of difference. It's a community of people that are unlike each other. Different races, different genders, different groups, but coming together, pressing in towards one another. The New Testament word for this is the gathering or the church, the community. It's a community of others united around Jesus. That's what the church is. And what I love about this is that instinctively they knew that when challenges began to arise when things became really tough and hard for them, rather than running from this community of others, they pressed into this community of others. Why? Because that's where Jesus was. That's where God's blessing was. That's where God resided, was in the heart and the lives of this otherness of people that have been transformed and come to life by his holy presence, otherwise known as his Holy Spirit. That God was residing within this community of people, the church, so the reason why I emphasize this is because in today's culture, um, it's, it's, it's becoming more and more common for people to be spiritual. It's becoming more and more common for people to, um, in some ways, want or recognize a need for God. But the difference with the spirituality, I think, that we see in a lot of the westernized types of experiences is what we have is sort of a religion that's very kind of catered to or specialized or edited to one's preferences. So what we have for the most part, especially in the West, is kind of this mentality where we say, you know, my relationship with Jesus is personal. It's, 
it's private, it's personal. It's just between me and Jesus, and I read my Bible once in a while, I pray, I go out and experience God, I listen to music sometimes, um, sometimes I'll bounce from church to church, I, but, but I'm not really part of or committed to a community of people. And the point that I'd make is that that type of spirituality, if that's what you want to call it, is actually totally foreign to the New Testament. It, it does, you, you won't find that type of spirituality or that type of relationship with God. It just actually does not exist in the Bible. Um, it does exist within uh, you know, 21st century Western society. It, it exists in wholesale value, all right? It's, it's, it's broad, it's wide, it's extremely shallow, and very much so lacks any form of depth. So the problem is, is that anything that lacks depth uh, is that when real struggles and challenges come, those roots, how shallow they are, because um, they haven't gone down deep, get ripped out. And as the wind rises, as difficulties rise, you'll be ripped out, you will and no longer be stable, you will be unstable, you will lose any form of equilibrium. So what we see with the early church is that they're the exact opposite. They're strengthened, they're built up, they're encouraging one another because they recognize the fact that Jesus has brought them together. They are a community of people unlike each other, different races, different groups. Now, the fact is, is that this is radically different than the social order of the bigger, wider, broader community of first century. Because in a lot of ways, the culture of first century, in a lot of ways, mirrored ours in a lot of ways, where you have people that unite around certain causes or groups or social economic levels or races and whatnot. And it's the same thing in the first century. What Jesus does is he comes in, he completely upsets or overthrows that entire social order and says, no, 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 in my kingdom... The last will be first. The first will be last. The weak will be strengthened. The strengthened, who's pompous and arrogant, will become weakened. There will be a sense where all are one and equally welcomed. It's, it's amazing. And this is what we see in the early church too, is that the moment tragedy struck, they pressed in to one another. It was their default mode. The reality is that all of us, we have some form of a default where we turn, where we run, where we gather, where we turn towards uh, question that you gotta, you got to really kind of think about is, what is the default mode for you? A lot of it, it's, it's different for us. Um, for them, they, they press into each other. It'd be kind of equivalent to saying, um, you know, I'm out of prison. I'm going to go straight to my community group. Or I'm going to go straight to church or go straight to my group of people that love Jesus. And we're going to pray together. And we're going to seek God together. For others, it's like you go straight to and then fill in the blank. What, what is that default mode in which you turn to? What, what's, what's the regular routine that you turn to. Again, it could be substances, it could be drugs, it could be entertainment, it could be downloading porn, it could be... I mean, we can, we can give this massive laundry list of default modes that we go to. But the real question you have to always ask is, how real sustaining is it? Is it life-giving? Long-term, maybe short-term. It's extremely life-giving, because downloading porn is extremely life-giving in the immediate. But in the long-term, it does nothing but turn people into cynical people that become hardened and broken and ruined and have a tendency to bring that broken and ruined upon other people. But the gospel offers an alternative that says, come to me, you're broken, you're weak, you're weary, you're hurting, and I will give you life. And that life will be found amongst this community of like-minded, though radically different people that have been transformed by, by grace, otherwise known as the church. 
spend a lot of time, like I said, on this, but I'm going to resist the temptation because for some of you, that may pose the problem because for some of you, hurt has come from the church. But I don't have time to go into that, so sorry. The fact is, though, is that we see the early church run into its own. Second thing that we see is that they prayed. They lifted up their voices, in verse 24 it says, together to God. They lift up their voices together to God, and they begin to pray. What's amazing to me is really what they prayed and how they prayed. And this is where it gets really amazing, of the substance um, of what they actually prayed. And there's two things that I think about when they prayed uh, that we'll look at each one of them. Um, they prayed for two, I think, two specific big pillars, if you want to think of it that way, were sustaining everything about their life. On the one hand, they prayed that the power of God would be displayed. They prayed that the power of God would be put on, displayed, or become tangible or seen or revealed. And we see that in two different ways. The first of which, take a look at uh, the way that they address God. It becomes really uh, clear here in the way that they speak to God. Verse 24 says, And when they heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God, and they said, Sovereign Lord. Okay, that, that phrase right there, Sovereign Lord, is a really important phrase. It's a clue to what they're thinking about as they're approaching God. The word sovereign lord in the Greek is actually the Greek word despotes. We get the English word despot from, which that's why it's some of our translations is translated as sovereign ruler, sovereign lord. Eugene Peterson in his message translation uh, translates it this way, strong God. I love that picture, strong God. The idea, the emphasis here is radically different than what Jesus proposed in the Lord's Prayer, right? Jesus in the Lord's Prayer says, when you pray, pray Abba which is equivalent to a child's babbling, saying, Daddy, Dada. But here they're not praying Abba, because what they don't need in this context is they don't need some form of therapeutic response from God. They don't need, in a sense, warm affection from God um, that doesn't in any way nullify the fact that uh, is there conflict between the fatherliness of God that we oftentimes need and the power of God? No conflict whatsoever. But there are different aspects of who God is. God is this powerful, almighty Father. But in the context here, the emphasis is upon the fact that God is a sovereign ruler. Now, why uh, do they pray like this? And I think, again, the context of the story is, is, is essential to understanding why. Because who are they facing? Well, they're facing literally the power brokers of the day. They're facing the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders. These are the people, again, I remind you already, um, that they had the power to put these guys to death. On top of that, they're also facing uh, the power behind the power uh, on the Temple Mount, which is Rome. So Rome, it's arguably stated that Rome is the greatest militaristic superpower that's ever ruled the planet as an empire. All right? I, I think most historians would recognize that. So in the context, here are two little guys, right? two guys that are just part of uh, the small following of Jesus' followers that are originally from the backwaters of Kentucky, right, Galilee, to so some out-back area that they, they're not city dwellers, they're not educated, they don't have degrees after their names. They are literally facing the superpowers of the era, and they realize these guys aren't playing games, They've threatened us. We already know what they have done to Jesus. When they killed Jesus, it wasn't a, a, a bloodless death. It was a bloody, gruesome, torturous type of a death. And now they're facing that same reality. 
I would imagine they had kids. Some of them did. Some of them had family members. That The, the fears, no doubt, began to ripple beyond themselves into, well, if they're going to kill us, will they kill my, my, my daughter? Will they kill my grandparents who are weak and feeble? How far will their killing spree go and extend to exterminate this movement? So the point that I would make is that they are literally facing an insurmountable, uncontrollable, untamable power. So what do they need in that moment? They need a power that's greater than the power that faces them. And here's what they do. They, they pray. They approach God as the sovereign ruler over all things. And, and it doesn't stop right there because they, they put God in the context, which I love this, because they go on to say, oh, sovereign God who made the heavens and the earth and the sky and the sea and all these other things. In other words, every tangible thing that we see, that we touch, we taste, we feel, we walk on, we observe, we watch, God, all of this you have by your own decree caused it to be. So the question is, how powerful is God? Is he more powerful than Rome? Is he more powerful than the threats of the Sanhedrin? So here's, here's what's happening. They are literally preaching to themselves the actions, the power, the might, the goodness of, of who God is. And as they're doing that, they were actually bringing healing to their own hearts. Like God is using his word that's alive in their heart. They're reciting it, reminding themselves of who God is, the, the power, the nature, the character of who God is. But they're also doing something else that's, that's, that's not necessarily overt in the story, but it's, it's there. They're reminding themselves of where they are within the story of God. I think that's one of the reasons why they say, God, that's right, you created all things. Which, in their prayer, they go back to creation. They go back to the creation story, the original creation narrative, where in the beginning, God created all things at the word of his mouth, and all things, God says of himself and of his own uh, work, it is very good. But they're also aware of the fact that all things didn't remain very good for long because brokenness, sin, rebellion began to vandalize God's good creation. But the story continues that God promises to take this good creation that has gone wrong, that he was going to set it right. That God promises one of these days I will set it right. One of these days I will bring king. And this king will bring about a reordering, a restructuring, a reorienting of this broken, vandalized creation. And they're reminding themselves that that's right. God, God's doing something. God's powerful. And not only that, God has invited us to be part of this creation story, this new creation story. And here we're at in the middle of this story that began with God saying, let there be. And all of a sudden, here they are. We're in the middle of this. Somehow we're facing the most powerful men, power brokers of the age. And yet, God, the despot, the sovereign ruler over all things, has his hand upon our lives. They remind themselves. And while they're doing this, they are bringing about this sense of transformation to their own heart. So in their mind, this goes on even further where it gets really amazing because in the rest of the prayer, it goes on, it describes this. Verse 28 says, God, do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak 
your word with all boldness. So it's, again, it's amazing. They're praying, God, we, we, we need boldness. Give us boldness. And here's, here's a verse that blows my mind. Verse 30 says, And while you stretch out your hand to heal. That phrase, stretch out your hand, is actually an Old Testament idiom where it, it speaks of the hand of God. You know, we, we, there are psalms that describe God upholds all things with his righteous right hand or the right hand of a king is his right hand of power. Oftentimes it would be the hand in which the king would hold a sword in. Be the hand in which the king would execute justice with that hand. But here's, here's what's amazing. So the idiom or the metaphor of a right hand or hand being stretched out is this picture, this idiom of power. God, it's the idea of saying, God, will you stand up against these superpowers on our behalf? But, but here's where it gets absolutely mind-blowing. Because if you or I were to be faced with these insurmountable powers that seem threatening to us, and they seem to shake us to the core, we would pray, I think, I think, at least I would, pray God smash their teeth in their mouth, God cause them to trip up on their own plans, God cause a nuclear bomb to fall on their own heads, God let them carpet bomb themselves, God let them do something that will completely obliterate them, use your power, God, uh, for my good and their own destruction, right? That's not their prayer, This this is shocking. Because it goes on to say, while you stretch out your hand to heal with signs and wonders. They're saying, God, your power is a power that's not used to manipulate other powers. It's not used to bring crushing or vengeance or violence or vindication or destruction or shame or guilt. But it's a hand that brings healing. I want you to think about that for a moment. Because... This should rattle us to the core because for some of us, we think of God as stretching out his hand to keep you at arm's length. God's stretching out his hand to do this. Get away from me. Marginalize you. Shove you off into the wilderness. God saying, stay away from me. God saying, I don't want you. God saying with his hand indicating his dislike of you. But... Their prayer is, is, God, stretch out your hand, your power, your might, oh, sovereign despot of all creation to heal. What that means, really clearly, is that God's plan is not to smite, not to crush, not to oppress, not to alienate, not to marginalize, not to crush, destroy, oppress you. It's actually to heal you. It's actually to take the vandalization, the brokenness, the rebellion that has maybe either been brought upon you by way of other secondary, third forms of circumstances in your life or been brought upon you by way of your own sinful actions. But nonetheless, they're reminding themselves of the fact that we have a God that is actually mighty to heal. And they're praying, God, as we face the superpower of the day, that threatens to crush us. God, through us, by your power, extend your hand to heal. The Jesus movement is a healing movement. <laughs> I realize Christianity has not always had that stigma. All right? Sometimes when Christianity has been at its best, and I should say probably Christendom has been at its best, 
Christians have established hospitals and have gone into places where bubonic plague was ravaging and crushing and destroying people, and Christians were going in there saying, we will help you, and others are like, you're stupid, how would you do this? You're going to get the plague. They're like, it's okay, if we die, we die, it's okay, we're going to help other people. That's when Christianity has shined its best. Other times, Christianity has not always been at its best, meaning it has been a corrupting and an oppressive movement, but at its core, at its authentic roots, Christianity is about a God that brings healing. And this is what they're praying. It's about a God that uses power not to oppress, not to crush, not to destroy his creation that has gone astray. But it's to bring about correction, healing, restoration. Do you, do you realize how amazing this is? that we have this God. And this is how these guys are reminding themselves who God is, what God is up to. In other words, they're putting themselves back into the very story of God. Oh yeah, God, that's where we're at. We're part of this movement in which you adopted us. You have reset the direction, the pathway, the, 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 the patterns of our lives. You've laid claim to us. It's the idea of like adoption. It's one of the reasons why the New Testament describes uh, salvation in language like adoption. That's what adoption is. It's, it's God basically using his power to redirect our futures, right? So if you were a parent and you were to go adopt a child, say go to another country, say a third world country where there's nothing but poverty and perhaps that child, the only hope that that child has perhaps um, really for the most part, the direction of that child's life might be to just continue to become part of that poverty-stricken system, become a part of the drug culture that's there, become a part of the gang lies that are populating, maybe even become part of a sex trafficking circle. But a parent that comes in and adopts that child is literally bringing that child out of that path of destruction and saying, no, your future will be my future. That's what Christianity is. It's God saying, no, the path that you have been on previously that's one towards brokenness, I'm lifting you out of that and bringing you into my story. This is exactly what these guys are praying. They're praying, God, that's right, you have lifted us out of the path of destruction. We are part of your system. We're part of your new society that no matter what types of powers there may be, there is always the power of Yahweh that's greater than. The question is, what what story do you find yourself in? That's the thing that you got to deal with. Because if, if you think that you are nothing but a lone person in this planet and you were lost, that's what leads and oftentimes compounds our own brokenness because we don't know where we're going. But these early Christians, they weren't walking around with this great distress over where's our future. They, they were found. They knew who held their future. It was God. And the same God that spoke by his own words and brought all creation to be is the same God that is also leading and guiding and governing over the affairs of their own lives. See, that's what prayer does. It's not just simply us praying random prayers up to God. It's, It's about us digging into, especially when moments are really tough, of digging into Scripture and trying to understand who God is, what God is up to, and how I fit within that. It's about reorienting my mind and my understanding who really is the sovereign over all things, who's the king over all things. And, and, and when the early church came back to realize, that's right, Yahweh is king over all things. 
it reoriented them. Um, last thing I would say is they prayed um, that not only the power of God would be displayed, but also the sovereignty of God would bring forth strength. So they pray, you know, sovereign Lord, and it goes on later on. Um, he quotes a psalm, Psalm 2, and it's this passage where it says, Why do the Gentiles rage or the nations rage? And the people imagine a vain plot. Um, the kings of the earth have come together. They've conspired against their holy one. And they're basically saying, God, th- we, we've seen that unfold in front of our own eyes, that this is what happened with Jesus. Jesus was your anointed one. These nations have come together. They've conspired to put Jesus to death. But somehow you were in this. Somehow you ordained and you were governing over all this. This is where we get the term, the sovereignty of God. The idea of God predestining or being sovereign over things shouldn't, shouldn't um, scare you. Um, in fact, I, I, I've said this before, that, that all Christians, if you are a follower of Jesus, you have to believe in predestination. Like, you absolutely have to. If you believe the scripture, you have to. And the idea behind it is just simply a statement that, that God is in control. That's all that simply means. I mean, there's other nuanced forms of thinking about that and understanding, but I'm not going to go in there right now. But the point of the matter is, is that the early church recognized, God, you are king over all things. And that even though the most horrific scenario came upon Jesus. The worst case of all worst case scenarios, Jesus absorbed in his own flesh and bones. And somehow you brought tremendous good out of that. And that's the story we find ourselves in. Somehow, somehow, God, we're choosing to believe that you are going to carry us in the same way that you carry Jesus. Because the same fate that happened with Jesus because you adopted us into your new society, your kingdom, your church, will no doubt happen to them, will happen to us. We will be ultimately protected, secure. In other words, again, it's this constant reminder, we belong to the story of God. What story do you belong to? I mean, think about it this way. If, if you were to try to define your life according to your story... I think one of, the reasons, one, of the, one of the reasons why we oftentimes find ourselves full of despair and angst, anxiety, is because we lose sight of this. We are quick to lose sight of this stuff. Um, we forget. We're forgetful people. And the way that we come back and we reorient ourselves, we, we steep ourselves in Scripture, we think about these things, we pray through these things, and we do it within a community of people. Now, I, I think one of the things that we, for the most part, as a westernized Christian church has lost is um, the ability of just really being able to sit down and pray through things like this or to recite scripture, to remind ourselves about the ways of God until healing and reorientation actually comes. And I think part of that is because we're totally schizophrenic culture of people. We're easily distracted. I mean, again, how many times have you ever sat down and you start reading or praying or running to do something spiritual or whatever, and all of a sudden you spend the next 15 minutes or, God forbid, two hours um, watching cat videos on YouTube, and you're like, oh my gosh, what happened with my time? Like, that's right. I just wasted two hours of my time. And, and you would just you pick up in the rest of your life, and it's still broken. It's still hurting. It's still, you're disoriented. You're still feeling like this comet that's like circling God knows what, you're just like absolutely out of control. Um, but the, the reality of actually sitting down and just praying through stuff like this and reminding yourself, that's right, God, you are, you're God. Uh, let, me, let me give you a personal example. When, the, most of you guys know, about a year and a half ago or so, something like that, I can't remember when the time frame it was, I always lose 
side of this type of stuff. But um, I, I had, I had uh, something that was going on with my throat. I needed to have surgery. The big question mark was, is it cancer? And there's a lot of uncertainties about that. I had no idea what was going on. So I had this throat surgery, and I couldn't talk for a bunch of weeks. So it was a couple months, uh, which is tough, you know, when, when, when your job is talking. Um, it's a little bit tough to, like, not be able to talk. And, and, and on top of that, the big question was looming over my head, cancer. So what, what does that mean? Uh, what does that mean for my future? Does it mean I, I'm going to be unemployed in a few months? Am I not going to have a job because I can't talk anymore? Like, what does my future look like? Is it, like, how far is it? Is cancer? How far is it spread? So all these question marks just begin to rise in my mind. And sometimes it would lead to this, like, climax of total anxiety in my heart. And I'd, I wouldn't always tell my wife when I would have these moments of, of, like, almost insanity, borderline insanity. Sometimes I would. She would pray for me. But, but sometimes I would just go out and I would just, I would just, I would do this. I would just be like, God, you're king. And, and if I lose my voice, I, I lose my voice. If I never talk again, then it must mean you got something else for my future. I don't know what that looks like. If, 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 I, if I could never preach again, then that, that's kind of a bummer because I, 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 I like doing what I do. I love my job. But if that's not the future for me, if God would, I don't know what, I don't know what it is. And again, all this was built upon the what ifs. But in some cases, it was so disorienting to me to where I, I was, I mean, there were moments where I would literally feel, I'm, I'm on the, I think I'm on the brink of, of insanity because I don't know what is, what's real and what's just fantasy in my brain. And I don't know, my mind's playing tricks on me and my anxiety is overtaking me. I don't know. But I would go out on these long walks. I would just go rehearse scripture. I would just pray. I would just remind myself that, God, you're king, you're Lord, and it wouldn't always necessarily bring my heart in this place where it's like, it's chipper. Like, like we don't see these people walk away from this prayer meeting and they're like, oh, we're all happy now. Like, everything's chipper in our world again. It's like, that is not what happened. But it does say they walked out with a newfound boldness. Why? Because their lives were reoriented to see that God is God and their lives, no matter how disoriented they may have felt, no matter how uh, thrown off center or off balance they may have become, they were able to, by God's grace, reorient themselves on the truth that God is king over all things. And in closing, I want to finish with this. We see finally is that they go out and they just continued on. And again, this is amazing to me that in spite of these threatenings, in spite of the real factuality behind these threatenings, the real uh, substance of these threats, these weren't just empty threats, um, they go back out, and they keep doing what they're doing, which is shocking to me. How is that possible? And I think that phrase that says, and they just continued on, was actually precipitated by two statements. One, it says that the place where they were shook, so this mysterious shaking or earthquake begins to happen. And then secondly, we're told that they were filled with the Holy Spirit. So let's first think about the, what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So again, we're already told in the book of Acts that they already had the Holy Spirit upon them, they had this experience. So what does it mean that they were filled with the Holy Spirit? There's no indication that these people like lost the Holy Spirit. There's no indication that they did any sin that somehow uh, diminished the Holy Spirit's presence or power. But I, a lot of scholars would suggest, and I, I, I would agree with this, is that they, they had a fresh assurance, fresh awakening, fresh, maybe if you would experience the Holy Spirit's presence, that it, it gave them this ability of having boldness. Uh, two fast examples. One um, uh, in the form of, of marriage. Like, 
um, I'm going on 25 years of marriage. In, in March will be 25 years. I know, shocking, but um, it's, it's amazing. Like, I, I, I look back, I think, I can't believe 25 years ago I got married to my wife. Um, and it's, it's amazing. And the fact is, is that I, I'm not going to be any more married than I was last year. And the fact is that there are times in my marriage where um, there are highs and there's lows, just like anybody. There's times when, when my wife and I have these experiences of incredible ecstasy and moments of great love and looking in each other's eyes, and it's amazing. And there's other times where um, my, my, my wife doesn't want me in the room, and, and, and I'm, we're grinding at each other, and we're, we're having to work through stuff, and I'm having, typically the way it goes, I have to say I'm sorry, and I have to explain the stuff that I've done that's that was offensive or hurtful or painful, and then my wife has to say, I forgive you, and there's this exchange that goes on between the two of us, and we're, we're, we're reconciled again. And, um, but when, when there's moments of heights, um, we're, I'm not any more married to her than I was when we were at each other. Um, one other final experience or example would be a guy by the name of Martin Lloyd-Jones. He tells a story of the Holy Spirit's experience uh, coming upon us. He describes a father who's walking with his son. As they're walking, the father's holding his son's hand. And at one point, the father just stops, picks up his son, gives him a big bear hug, tells him he loves him, kisses him on the cheek, puts him back on, down on the road, and keeps walking. And the son experiences in that moment this profound sense of sonship. But he was always the son, there was never a time when he was not a son, when he was outside of the realm of being a son. But in that moment of being swept off of his feet, he experienced sonship in a most tangible, profound way. And, and this, this is what I think it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Like, there's something where we are aware of the fact that God is our Father, and he is our sovereign Lord, and he loves us. And he's working all things together. It goes, it's not just this cognitive response. It's this overwhelming, all-encompassing, holistic response. Body, soul, mind, spirit, however you want to describe it, is, is swept up in this awareness that God, God, God loves me. Final thing, and I finish with this, is there is this earthquake. Um, there's two other times in the life of the story of the Bible in the New Testament of Jesus, especially where there's an earthquake that happens. And so what we see here in the story is that there's this earthquake that takes place, and immediately following this earthquake, they have this boldness to go out and proclaim Jesus, even in spite of or against these superpowers that have threatened to kill them. How? How is it possible that they're able to do that? Um, Somehow it's tied to this earthquake. Um, that earthquake shakes them, and from that shaking, they somehow are changed. Um, Jesus, when, when he comes into this world, in other words, the author, Yahweh, who's writing this whole story, enters into the very narrative he's scripting. On the cross, Jesus is literally carrying the consequences, the result of your sin, my sin. In other words, wherever this, con- this concept of cosmic vandalism, wherever it leads, it all led to Jesus. Jesus bears it upon himself and it leaves him on the cross, broken, rejected, coming undone. His life literally is shaken all the way to the core, to the very point where we're told that there is this massive earthquake. And then he dies. Why? What's this a picture of? It's a picture of Jesus literally coming undone. It's a picture of God in the flesh being shaken 
to the very core. And then three days later, another earthquake happens. The stone that was in front of the tomb rolled away, and out comes Jesus. Right? This great triumph over tragedy. So here the church is in the midst of this prayer meeting, asking this powerful God to come down and use his power in a way to not crush his enemies, but to heal his enemies. They're shaken. John Chrysostom, an early church father, wrote this, and it's absolutely fantastic. He said this, this whole place was shaken, and that made them, the early church, all that more unshaken. Boom, drop the mic. That is amazing to think that somehow the church, in the midst of this time where they could have had every opportunity to be shaken within their life, they were unshaken because they were resting upon the fact of a God that was shaken for them, God that was broken, crushed for them. And that gave them the equilibrium, the poise to rise up out of the potential of being shaken and saying, God's with us. He's co-opted our story. Our story isn't a bunch of random dead-end stories. We have been brought into, we have been adopted by Yahweh, who is not just powerful, but he loves us, and he's somehow working all things together for our good. And we know that because the greatest tragedy of all was Jesus. And somehow God re-scripted, or scripted, I should say, out of this great tragedy of Jesus, the greatest triumph, the greatest victory story of all. And if God did that for Jesus, and if we find ourselves in Jesus, in the story of Jesus, then that means that the great tragedies that we may be facing right now, that may be threatening us, somehow God will script triumph and beauty and goodness out of that. Somehow, some way, we don't, we don't know. How he's going to do that, we're not certain. But one thing that we can be certain of, it's not because he doesn't love us. And we know that because we see the story of Jesus. And that's what God invites us into. And that's where we're going to finish. And that's how we're going to respond. So why don't we all stand and let's respond to this God that invites us. He invites us to leave behind our Stories of brokenness and hurt, things that maybe we're familiar with, the things that have actually contributed perhaps to our own brokenness or constantly bringing us into a place of destruction or ruin or guilt or shame or despair. And he invites us to come to him. And this is the type of God that we have. Arms wide open. He loves us, welcomes us, doesn't cast anyone aside. No matter how different we are from each other or different from him, because all of us, at the end of the day, are radically different from God. He's holy. We're unholy. He's good. We're good sometimes, but mostly mingled with bad stuff. But we have a God that welcomes us nonetheless and says, let me, let me change you. Let me move you from death to life. Let me move you from disorientation to reorientation. Let me give you hope in the place of despair. So we'll respond. We'll have communion. We have some rugs in the front. If you just want to come before this sovereign God and just cast your cares before him. If you want to pray, there's some people over off by the cross that would love to pray for you. But let's respond to him. Let's respond to him as if he were a king. He's this king that's great, mighty, and powerful. What are the circumstances that you're facing? What are the go-tos? What are the reflexive actions that you move towards 
Are they life-giving? Are they destructive? What are the things that God is saying? Bring it to me. I hope you start again. I'll give you a new life. So let's respond to him.